Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to the last episode in this series. We end it talking about toddlers. There's this idea that toddlers are manipulative and demanding. And you know what? They are. And thank goodness, because they are trying to make sense of a world they have very little control over. By the way, I think the word manipulation is rather misused in relation to toddlers, and I use it here to mean resourceful instead of deceiving. I'm in conversation with child and adolescent psychotherapist Rachel Melville-Thomas, who is registered with the Association of Child Psychotherapists. Regular listeners may remember I spoke to Rachel for the teenage episode in Series 1. If you haven't listened to it, it's still available. Rachel has 30 years' experience working with children and teenagers. In this episode, she talks us through what is going on in the toddler brain. And as it turns out, it's rather a lot. No wonder things get a bit too much for them sometimes. We also talk about how best to understand and therefore help toddlers in a kind and effective manner. One of the big things I learnt in this episode was that toddlers learn about movement before they learn about speech. Obvious when you think about it. Hence why they often do rather than say. We purposely didn't specify an age range for what classifies as a toddler, as I found it useful even for older children. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to listen to this podcast ad-free and before it goes on general release, please consider becoming a patron from just £3 a month or you can give a one-off donation via Acast Supporter. Both links will be in the episode description. Rachel, welcome back to Series 5. And We spoke about teenagers before, but today we're going to be talking about toddlers. And I'm hoping that you can bring us some insight into toddlers. And I'm going to start with what is going on with the toddler brain? Right. Aren't they wonderful, amazing little creatures who push us to our limits? But what's incredible about a toddler's brain is that 90% of a child's brain develops in the first three years of life. And when you start looking into this, you find that this means there are billions of cells. I couldn't believe this. I'm not a neuropsychologist, but finding out more as I, in my work about the number of cells that get created in those early years is really amazing. And so what happens is toddler brains are the result of steady, intense growth through the first few couple of years of life. So I imagine it rather like a forest. You know, think neurons, all those nerve endings that connect up and help us to speak and think and talk and walk and all the rest of it. There's a forest of those going on. 
but on time lapse, like there's films where it just yes. happens really fast. Exactly. Sort of whiz, like a whiz into a forest. And if you look at sort of patterns, you can see this this incredible network happening. And then what happens is that the things that are not needed or not used get pruned away. So you think that forest gets thinned out, a bit like if you've got a rose bush and the, the bits are pointing in the wrong direction, you snip them off. So that's what's happening in the nerve cells of a, of a toddler brain. And the key thing to remember is that you and I and all parents can actually shape how that happens. And it happens largely through experience, so what your toddler sees and plays with and hears, and very importantly, the relationship they have with you can help to do this pruning, this sort of clipping and snipping back. It's a bit like having a block of stone or marble as a the basis for a sculpture, and then things get chipped off and chipped off and chipped off and formed into the shape, the sculpture, whatever you're making. And it gradually emerges. And that's really what's happening with the toddlers. But it does mean that, that enormous amounts of information are going into their head, not all of which they can make sense of, which, of course, affects how we deal with them. Yes, because we go from having this fairly compliant baby who may probably be compliant because they can't move around very much <laughs> to suddenly they're walking and everyone's very excited and they're talking. And then what you know I hear is... I don't really like this phrase, but the terrible twos, I like to think of them more as the kind of curious twos. But what starts happening as the baby grows up and becomes a toddler? What's going on in their brain? How might that manifest in behaviour? Well, I think that what happens is that they get more competent. So if you think about a baby really needs you, they're very dependent on you to do lots of things. And after a while, you get into this nice routine where you can feed them and change them and you know what makes them laugh and what know they enjoy playing and what they're interested in but as you get to about 18 months or so what happens is language develops and so your little one can actually say things back to you about what they think and this is a bit of a shock you've always been used to being the one in charge mm. and they're dependent on you they need you and now because of the language it sounds like they don't or it sounds like they've got a whole nother point of view and well, that, some that, people think they're very challenging. That, which... that, well, I think it is challenging. I think it's a yeah. shock. <laughs> Absolutely normal part of development, as we know, that children develop autonomy, independence. They're trying out their wings, as it were. Mm -hmm. But some of that means, no, I'm not going to get into yeah. my stroller. Not going to do it. Or, no, I don't like that banana anymore when I've eaten it every day for a week. They are flexing their little wings, their muscles, to try out what happens if they have some control over something. And that is, I think that's really quite surprising. So a lot of you know, parents I meet say, but she was always a lovely baby. She was smiley. She was lovely. We had a great time. And now she is going against me. And that's where that language comes in. As you said, the terrible, terrible twos. It's not terrible for them necessarily. It's terrible for us because we are challenged and I think a lot of readjustment has to happen. Do you think some parents find that stage more challenging than others? And if so, why do you think that might be? It depends on your toddler, doesn't it? Because the other things to say is they're all slightly different and they'll do things earlier or later. So there isn't a kind of standard time when they all start talking, for example, or walking or having their own opinions. So first of all, your toddler, say they begin to speak and have opinions quite early and say, no, I don't like that, or no, mummy, want daddy, or something, whatever. It depends on what helps you to feel calm and organised in your own life. Is it that everything is 
lined up and very much organised? Or is it that you are more of a flexible sort of person who doesn't mind last minute things? That's personality in us as adults. So if you are a person who likes things to be more predictable and organised, many of us are like that, then a toddler who is all of a sudden challenging that is a real challenge to your own equilibrium. That's the word. Your own sense of calm inside. And then the next thing you want to do is control it. How can I reduce this challenge? And that's where we get to phrases like terrible twos or taming your toddler. The idea that they're wild and they need taming. Mm. That sets up a battle. And I, I think if you set up a fight and a battle, you're going to cause problems for yourself because they're pretty persistent. Yeah, I mean, I think also my observations are that sometimes it can start to tap into how you yourself have been parented and your ideas of children, like, you know, if they should be seen and not heard and all that kind of stuff. And I think that perhaps understanding that they're not going against you, but following a natural path of discovery and growth is really helpful. They're learning ever so much. You know, they're learning to say no. They're learning their speech. They're finding their way in the world. What else is going on for them? Well, certainly motor skills are improving. The brain improves and builds from the bottom up. The lower aspect parts of the brain are to do with movement and sensory impressions. So you can run across to someone and hit them before you can say, I'm really cross, you took my toy, right? So, so that it happens in a very physical and immediate way. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So so similarly, same thing with different senses. I think the earliest sense to develop is the olfactory one. So in other words, smell mm-hmm. is really important. And that so you imagine being a little person, a lot of things that make you feel calm and happy are governed by how you smell how a mum smells, how your cot smells, how familiar smells. And and if that's changed or different it could really unsettle you because that's really in full operation whereas pro- probably you and I don't we don't pay so much attention it's more subliminal mm-hmm. so there are different bits that are developing at different times the more you're able to communicate and you feel heard and listened to the better you're going to be able to cooperate with your parent or caregiver rather than fight them therein i think is the problem that i think that's where a lot of things go wrong because a toddler will say no walking or no stroller, no pushchair, walk, walk or something like that. And you say, no, now come along. You know you've got to get into your stroller. We'll never get to school to pick up Jeremy unless you get in. It'll be too slow. Give them a great load of long words and they just carry on and it gets worse and worse. Mm. So I think we have to think about how to prune, if you like, our own language back so it becomes simpler and more direct. So that rather than giving long explanations with subclauses, like if you do this, then something can happen. That mm-hmm. really doesn't work on a toddler brain. Rather saying something like, Sasha, walk? Sasha, walk? No. Sasha, in stroller. Quick, quick. Fetch Jeremy. Like that. It's telegraphic. So you need to get back to a much more direct way of speaking. Mm. That feels counterintuitive to me personally. I never spoke like that to my children. Did you? I, oh, okay. No, I, I never did. That. I did simplify, but it might work for sort of other people, I suppose. Depends on the age. Obviously, you wouldn't talk about to a two and a half year old like that, but you might to. An I mean, I spoke more simply, but mm. then I like to think I choose my words quite carefully anyway. I've got a really good memory. It's not infallible, but I have very good memory of childhood, and I remember the sheer frustration of not being listened to. And not being sort of taken seriously 
And there's this kind of family folklore that I cut the blanket. I did, and I remember it, and I still remember how I felt. I wasn't listened to for something, and the only thing I could do was cut the blanket. We've still got that blanket somewhere. So I really understand how toddlers feel. I still feel like a toddler sometimes. What can we do to help them with that frustration? I think what you've highlighted that's really important is that feeling listened to. And one of the things is often we are speaking to toddlers from high up, aren't we? We're standing mm-hmm. up there, down there. So very simply getting down on their level and maybe holding a hand or looking at them and saying what you need to say, whether it's a longer sentence or a shorter one. But it's actually usually echoing back what they what you think is going on for them. Like yeah. you're very cross. You're really cross, aren't you? Or you didn't like it that, you know, Sally took that bear away. And one of the things I think we have to do is match their feeling or their tension in the body. So if you're saying, no, no, darling, it's lovely, and you're speaking in a nice, smooth voice, that sounds like you're not really getting it. Because Mm -hmm. I I think a toddler brain doesn't translate simply the words. It's going back to that sensory and motor, sensory motor development of the brain. It's much more about how you feel, how it, the sense of it. The tone of voice, much more important than what you're actually saying. But you wouldn't necessarily, if they're angry, you wouldn't match their anger because that would be quite Well, now hang on. Yes, in a way you can. What you can do is hold their hand very tight. So when you get angry, you often get very tense in your body. And Mm. if you're super sort of mellifluous and smooth and calm, you are in completely opposite to a person who's in a state. So sometimes if you clench your fists and say, oh, feeling really cross aren't you that comes across differently than Mm. if you say I think you're very angry so you can do it in your voice you can sometimes literally do it by holding your little person's hands or it's sort of squeezing them a little bit so that's what I mean about you're not getting angry but you're matching the intensity of the body experience and and Mm. emotions are really body experiences for toddlers aren't they very very much so and I think as an adult, when we get angry, we want a kind of a route to calm that goes through frontal lobes, that goes through reason. reason and sense and calm and someone saying, don't worry, it's fine. But actually, toddlers aren't operating like that. They are not able to emotionally regulate as easily. Something about matching where they are at is good. You match them like by crouching down to get to their size. You might match them by making a face, scrunching your face up, for example. And then saying what you want to say or even soothing. The nearest you could get in soothing terms would be stroking their hand or just giving them a little back rub or something like that. So it's very much on on a body level. Yes. And I think what you're saying about recognising how they feel is really important. I think there's something wonderfully honest about toddlers and their emotions. And I think as we get older, we start to become more socially conditioned But sometimes I think, gosh, I wish I could be that honest and just scream and say no to someone I don't like. Of course, you do get people that say things like, don't give in to them. They'll rule the roost. You need to show them who's boss. All phrases I found abhorrent. What would you say to them if they say they're going to rule you if you give in to them? And they will see that kind of behaviour as giving in. Yes, that's the language of the battles we were saying earlier. So it's a battle and I have to dominate or get you into submission, you little toddler person. That's because there's anxiety in the adult. They're really afraid that their life will be taken over by this person who's discovered language and seems to have huge opinions of their own. And what we say is you don't have to be 
afraid of that because you're much taller than them, for starters, and they really haven't got the capacity to fight you properly. And thirdly, they need you. That's really important. Although it looks like I'm independent and I'm fighting you and I'm running off or I'm smacking you, whatever, actually, in the end of the day, they'll collapse tired and exhausted and need a cuddle. So the fight is something in our minds. And it's important to try to understand that. We are the ones with the fully functioning, fully neurologically wired up brains, and they aren't. But I totally understand the frustration that people have and perhaps the way they survive is to, to use words like that. The words of like holy terror or something. I don't know whether you've seen this, but sort of you get T-shirts that say, mm. here comes trouble on mm. it. So why would you set up your toddler to be trouble? I, I don't know. Is it cute and funny? But it can get not cute and funny at all if they are really challenging you. And it, it's better to understand them than squash them. Parents can find that really challenging when a toddler hits them. Obviously, just to make it really clear that I am totally against adults hitting children or each other. But if a toddler hits you, that can seem very upsetting. What what would you do or say to a child who was hitting you or their brother or sister? Well, what we do is we shout, don't hit your brother like that mm. or something, which is us being angry at what's happening. I, I think that... That's possibly heard by a toddler as joining in with the aggression, really. Right. And I think what we have to do is, again, if you can crouch down, get hold of a hand and say, you're very cross about at what he's doing, but there's no hitting. And I was always do it that way round. I would suggest, I don't know, I had a go with my own children to try to, to say, you're in a big state right now, mm. is what you're saying in effect don't like that and then you say really calmly no hitting because if we can get your voice to say no hitting or no hitting in this house or something like that it doesn't sound like you're joining in the fight in the old days when people would sort of smack someone off the cuff as it were that's because the adult gets very angry and the toddlers have an enormous ability to get us into states that we didn't mean to be in so if you can try to match the feeling I do the squeeze hand thing and then say, but we have no hitting. If they're old enough with language to say sorry, they can say sorry, etc. Or you, I would say something like, no hitting, ow, ouch, poor David, whoever's been hit. It's not a case of doing it once <laughs> and then getting it. It needs repeating. They don't take things in really quickly and it's not them being disobedient or any of those things it's just there's a lot for them to take in I always remember someone telling me once about how a child painted the wall and got really upset because the mother got really cross the toddler probably thought they'd done a wonderful thing because they'd been praised the day before for a picture they'd done at nursery and so they wanted to give the mother a bigger picture and was really confused that the mother was really cross but of course, adults might see that as destructive and naughty behaviour, in inverted commas. What do you think about a situation like that when toddlers do stuff? I mean, are, are they being purposely provocative? You can see when they're purposely provocative because they put a hand out and they look at you, check back, put the hand out to the wall, check back, 
put the hand out to the wall. That's the provocative. It, they are so straightforward, as you say, that you can tell when they are just thinking, is this the limit of the boundary? Is this the limit? And you can see that happening. So when they're being provocative, they're testing a boundary. Why? Oh, just to find out what the limits of life are. It's really right. helpful to know what you can and can't do. And as your child gets older, when they're sort of three and four, they'll turn around, you know, a four-year-old turn around to the two-year-old brother and sister and say, no, Eddie, you can't do that. Because mm. they're like, I've got it now. Morality and rights and wrongs really of interest to toddlers. I mean, they're checking it out the whole time, but they will get it. They'll gradually get it. And I was thinking, you know, when we say somebody does something wrong and you say, if, if they've hurt or hit somebody, you can say, say sorry. But toddlers, when they get that, they will go and give someone a hug if they've wronged somebody or they'll give them a teddy. And mm. it's the idea of very simple hurt reparation is an important relationship to learn about. And if somebody's painting the walls, I, it's so much self-control for us as adults to say, you wanted to paint, but you cannot paint on the wall. And I think that as you say, sh shouting at a toddler who's done that when the day before they thought their painting was lovely is really, really confusing. So again, it's about age. Then you could have somebody, for example, who's say three and they were not allowed to do something and they go off and they secretly scribble on the wall somewhere or they because they're cross. Mm. Then you can say, I know you're really annoyed that I wouldn't let you do X, Y, Z, but doing that on the wall is not a good way to show it. And I'm really sorry, but you're going to have to whatever your sanction is, sit in the calm, quiet corner and have a think, or you're going to have, sorry, you can't have that toy or that iPad this evening or whatever you decide. But you can see the relationship of an activity to the feeling. In a young toddlers, we're talking 18 months, two years, two and a half, it's so much more impulsive and direct and trying to test out what is and isn't okay. I think we do a, we'll do a better job if we can tell them what's not okay by first realising what their initial intention was and then saying, that wasn't okay, that's not a good idea. Because in the, the whole thing is about the pruning those synapses, pruning the multiplication of neurons in the brain. And if we repeatedly do it in a harsh way, that's how it will stay. So... Worst case scenario, which I imagine most normal, well-meaning parents don't do, is the worst case scenario is to continually shout at a toddler and not tell them what they're doing right, but constantly tell them what they're doing wrong. Then you develop in that child, five-year-old, seven-year-old, 11-year-old, a sense of what am I doing wrong? I don't mean to be scary about this, but those neural pathways, those networks begin to form into little chains, if you like, so, so certain patterns will be set up, little grooves, if you like. And you don't want your six-year-old to default into, what did I do wrong, do you? You want them to think, well, I tried, I made, I made a mistake, but I can repair it. That's the loop we want them to, to have later on. Gosh, sometimes when I think about it too much, I mean, just the responsibility of being a parent and not screwing your children up is so enormous. So, yeah, if you're listening to this and you think, oh, my God, the fact that you're even listening surely means you're thoughtful about how you're bringing up your children and that's a good thing right absolutely absolutely and I think with toddlers because they can get you into states of mind that you don't normally get into you know beside yourself or really puzzled or frustrated is to, to forgive them and forgive yourself mm. because it's the repairing bit 
is the most important bit of baby care, of toddler care, is that you can mend it, you can mend it. And you, and you can even say, oh, mummy shouted a bit there, didn't she? Oh, that was loud because I was very, oh, I didn't like what you did. So you're repairing and you can do that. This is not about parent blaming or saying, gosh, you've got to watch every nanosecond. It's this sort of to and fro daily experience of living together where we're trying to understand this little person who's now got language, which really changes things. And how do you develop that in a positive way? Yeah. And I suppose also as adults, we are used to perhaps people doing what we ask them to in a workplace. We're used to communicating through words. And suddenly you have this child who may not even have a vocabulary as a toddler and is really challenging because you don't know what they want. And that can be really, really tough. Also, I mean, one of the things I repeatedly say to my readers is often parenting is not about what's happening, but what you're scared will happen if that behaviour goes unchecked. So in isolation, it's not really that big a deal if they, you know, do this or the other. You just think, oh, my God, if I don't stop this, where's it going to end? And I think that can be sort of quite frightening. Can we talk a bit about toddler tantrums and why they might be happening and in that sort of meltdown moment, how we can help a toddler? Yes, that's what we always think about with, with these little ones, isn't it? I think of toddlers as having probably two different kinds of tantrums. If we go back to that sort of painting on the wall thing of pushing the boundaries, I think there's one kind of tantrum where your toddler is really trying to get what they want to have happen happen mm -hmm. and it's what I call a sort of controller tantrum it's like stamping your feet and saying I want this I want this and screaming mm -hmm. for something and that you you can sense that they're a little bit more in control of what's happening they really are pulling themselves up to their full height and bossing you around you still need to say to them I think that this is what you really really want and you're very angry but you can't I'm sorry you can't have it Parallel to that is more like an anxiety tantrum where somebody has absolutely lost it. They just are so overwhelmed. They're tired. They can't understand what's happening. Their brain cannot compute the requests you're making of them. And then it goes into kind of meltdown panic mode when, when you might be lying on the floor in the supermarket. Can you tell the difference between the two? Well, I think you can. I think you can tell the difference because there is usually the the sort of collapsing I can't manage anymore tantrum might have tears involved in it mm -hmm. whereas the other one I associate with slightly older children where their will is very stubborn and they can't mm. do it but what do we do about that first of all you can't talk a toddler out of a tantrum not in the first instance what you need to do first of all is go through that sensory route. I have to say I'm not a massive fan of ignoring tantrums, which is very, very common in advice you'll read. It'll say, just leave your toddler to express themselves and they'll burn out. Mm. Okay. I guess there could be an argument for saying that, providing you do have a chat about it afterwards. But I would sort of go back to what we we're saying about when someone's very angry. And the first, first, first thing you do is sensory. So whether it's patting their back or holding a hand very tightly 
something like that and saying, I've got you, I'm holding you, you, you really are very cross now, you know, and doing that scrunch up face thing. It's any way into what is in effect a different brain state. But the part of the brain that is about deciphering language isn't terribly good anyway, but they aren't going to be able to use that very easily. They might be able to use singing, something like that. And you're, what you're trying to do is get them to get out of that state. Now, older toddlers, you can get them to do breathing, like big breath, big breath, balloon, blow up the balloon, or whatever your image is, you know, look at me, look at mummy, look at daddy, look at my face, and then you're blowing out so that you're not talking about the, the matter at hand, whether they did or didn't want a biscuit or they wouldn't, wouldn't do something. You're just getting them out of the state and you are not, in quotes, letting them get away with it if you do that. Okay, this is exactly what we would do with an older child in a state or a teenager in a state, is go for sensory calm down first. That's the first thing you need to do. And if you can do that, people will have all kinds of methods of doing that. So it could be holding, giving them a cuddle, could be singing, could be stroking, something along those lines. And then when when you see the little <gasps> drawing breaths, so they're gasping mm. and they're... <gasps> and it drops you go there we go you just catch it catch it when it, that, that little drop catch it and say that's good now we're calming down we can have a little talk about what's going on and you, you catch it is probably what people do in all kinds of de-escalation training you know in the police and stuff like that you actually just catch it and drop it down so that they can at least get the good working bits of their brain going again because that's what we want we want some sort of communication i think to leave a toddler let's say on the floor is really abandoning them a bit really and I'm not sure they learn a lot so some people might say well they've got to learn this is unacceptable I don't think they've got the equipment in brain terms to, to learn from that what they experience is just I've been left so, same reason as like you know I'm not really very keen on toddlers being put on naughty steps or time out because we're still in the framework of separation anxiety and I think to be abandoned with your own sort of muddy pool of anger and crossness and fed up and I don't understand and why can't I is is really hard I'm not sure you'd learn from that apart from that's awful what an awful thing what I'm saying is I don't, I don't think it um, is a deterrent for the next time necessarily no I, I agree and I often think if a friend came around to your house and they were really upset or they spilt a glass of water, you wouldn't put them on a step to think about what they'd done. <laughs> or if they were having a meltdown because they were really upset, you wouldn't walk away from them. And I don't really understand why we do that to children. They're so vulnerable and they need us. But I think it goes back to perhaps the way people have been parented or maybe the sort of perceived wisdom in their group. The problem is we, we're like, it's these phrases which you're so right, we hear from our own generation or the generation before that says they've got to learn as if it magically will happen. They will learn by your experience of you being caring and trying to understand them. They will learn by copying you. So if you've but everyone's shouting, they will learn that shouting is what we do. So, but they've got to learn as if they were doing it in isolation on their lonely timeout space. Is going to work possibly for a much older child, like a six-year-old, who can have a think? Yeah. But really, toddlers are not very good at having a think. In fact, you try leaving a toddler in a space; they just get up and, as you say, they just get up and walk off. 
And if you really, really think someone needs to sit down and just calm down, I suggest you put them on the cushion or the corner or wherever you want them to be, you know, the beanbag or something, and you sit there, hold their hand and turn away from them. So in other words, you've got a link with your hand to them. You're like, I'm whole, I'm still here, but I'm not, just for a second, I'm not going to talk to you. If you, if you want to, to use that. So actually what you're saying is, I'm not speaking to you, but I have not left you. Because that, that's to get around the abandoning, feeling like left. Is that not really confusing for a toddler though? No, I don't think so. I think because looking away and looking is a very powerful part of infant and toddler interaction. Mm. So I don't know. I'm such a softy. I don't think I could. <laughs> I find that even even the thought of doing that. I mean, I have definitely made mistakes. This age will make you feel I'm doing it wrong, and I I deeply deeply am, I don't want anyone to think, oh gosh, I shouldn't have done that because actually things do come out in the wash and they do you do repair and recover. So the personalities of your children are going to be like you genetically most of the time, or maybe if you've adopted or fostered or whatever, they may be different, but your style of doing it is going to be understood by your toddler, right? Mm. I would say there is some leeway for that. Not entirely. It doesn't mean just to say, well, if my style is shouting, I'm going to carry on with it. But there is a familiarity about that. And if you thought, no, I could never leave someone on their own. Well, you're not. I think the image I had was sitting, was kind of sitting near them, but you're yeah. just using eye contact. But I think also you said something there about, about being authentic. And I think in the early days with my first child, you know, you, you are a bit at sea, well, I was, and you kind of, like, listen to advice. And sometimes I'd follow it, but it felt wrong. Mm. And yes. actually, when I listened to my instinct, although, of course, it's it's got to be, in a way, an informed instinct, I felt much happier and more comfortable. Because sometimes I remember thinking, gosh, the books would have me do this, but actually I don't want to do that. Because, like I said, I really remember what it was like to be a child. And I think it's really important to say that if toddlers, young children... Whatever age you're trying to communicate a, a feeling, an emotion to you, and that's constantly blocked or ignored, they will eventually, will they not, stop coming to you with them? Yes, we're trying to lay down a channel, which means they will always come to you, right up to adolescence and beyond, we hope, so that they're going to leave that open, as you say. And but just really trying to understand, first of all, what kind of kit they arrive with, as it were, you know, what's actually available to them. It is like learning a language, I guess. It's like learning a a new language where you are going to try and understand what's going on for them. And not just, I guess, punishment is, is perhaps what previous generations have felt was right, being told off. And that's where naughty steps, etc. You talked about coddlers being curious they are they want to find out they want to grow and that's absolutely 100% what they should be doing they're finding out about what we expect of them how you should behave to your older brother what happens in the morning when we have to rush to get somebody to school and you have to come with me there's a whole time element I was thinking a lot about toddlers having to join in our sense of time when they have no mechanism at all for (laughs) measuring it zero which is like Oh my, you know, hurry up, come on, get your shoes on now because we've got to go. How do you compute that if you're a toddler that just wants to keep looking at an interesting bit of the carpet on the bottom step? How do you? One of the things is routine and that's very standard advice for everybody is just that make sure you try and do things at roughly the same time every day. Give them warning. And I'm a massive kitchen timer fan. I get a kitchen timer that looks like a chicken or a panda and say when the panda goes ping, that means... 
we're going to put our shoes on. So you have little markers to help them mark out time. A distraction is a perfectly legitimate way to get your toddlers to do things, to hurry up, to get in the car, to get... What do you mean by that? Oh, I mean, look at this now. You have something they've never seen before, or you just draw their attention to an interesting toy or something that that maybe they haven't looked at. Or something that they can Does actually that not make them take up even more time though. If you're trying to, if we're no, when you say of... if you sit in the stroller, you can have a look at this. If you oh, sit I in see. the car, you know, you can look at so this. You so bribe it's kind them. Of, I think it's doing something for the brain to get involved yeah. so that they forget then, like, oh, I wanted to do the other thing. Rechanneling their attention. Yes, that's good. And I would say, I would only say, just be careful how you use tech to do that because that's a massive, massive popular yeah. distraction technique and people say oh I don't know what I do without it I just give them the iPad and they calm right down it's like well mm, they're going to do a lot of that in their life yeah and also once you've started down that route you're a bit sort of stuck with having to do it you mentioned timing and I know that one of the things I've heard was things like you know I hear people saying right you know come down from there I'm going to count to three one two three right that's it no telly tonight I've heard this in like the playground and I just think oh my god that poor toddler barely heard I couldn't get down off the climbing frame in three unless I jettisoned myself off the top of it one of the mums on a parenting board that I used to co-run called Kerry gave me some really good advice once which she said if you do want to do that sometimes it's important she said give them a longer count time and she suggested 10 because that gives them time to process it and so I used to count really slowly to 10 I never got to 10 they always or came or did that because I could see them they because I think toddlers want to please don't they oh yes Yes, they but do. what do you think about that counting to three, counting to ten? Good idea, terrible idea? I think counting using numbers is not maybe something that your two-year-old necessarily has the skills to do. What they're hearing is in your voice, a measurement of time in your voice. That's what's mm. happening. I think sometimes that might, I think the longer time, I like the longer time idea, it's great. Also use it in events or things. So if you're in the playground, you have you can have four more swings. And then as you're doing it, you like, oh, let's say five more swings. So you push them and then you go, that's four. And then and there's three swings left. Now there's two swings left. Now there's one swing left and it'll be time to go in a minute and we jump off. So you're actually using the event rather than a number. You know, like we all do Father Christmas and how many sleeps. Using sleeps or events or whatever it is. My children used to use for longer periods of time, but they'd use episodes of The Simpsons. So how long is this journey? (laughs) It's three episodes of The Simpsons. It's a kind of, they kind of, when I was little, money used to be bubble gums because bubble gums were a penny. So I used to think that's 10 bubble gums or 20 bubble gums. It's just a way of me understanding it. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Rachel, I often hear about we have to help children regulate their emotions. What does that mean? Emotional regulation means that we have a kind of volume control knob on how we feel so that you can feel, for example, if you're angry, you can be irritated, you can be mildly annoyed, you can be cross, you can be very annoyed, you can be angry, you can be furious. Imagine a dial with those stations on it, as it were. Mm -hmm. Toddlers don't have a very reliable dial. So the old days when you had a, a stereo system or a radio where you turn it on and, and it would be way too loud and then it mm. would be very quiet. So that's what's happening in their feelings. So they have very big feelings or they have very small feelings and they can't match the right level to the event. They might be furious that you've asked them to stop doing what they're doing to leave somewhere. But they also might be furious if somebody moves one block out of their lego that they're playing with it could be a tiny thing regulation would be matching the feeling to the occasion getting it right so similarly with crying you know some people will will have very wobbly dials on crying so the cry at the slightest thing and what we're trying to do is to is to help them regulate it which is get them to notice how they're feeling and then to find the right level now massive part of this is is language and naming things you actually use language to show them that there are different levels. So emotional regulation, you can help them to see that was a bit of an overreaction, basically. So how would you do it? Say, like, I'm a toddler, I'm having a massive tantrum because somebody's moved one Lego brick. Disproportionate. <laughs> how would you help me understand that that was a dis... I'm allowed to be annoyed, but slightly maybe turn the volume down. What would yes. you say to me in that situation? I think they learn by looking at you and they learn that... What we're talking about now is catastrophizing, I think. Mm. And that's what I'm trying to help a toddler not to do is catastrophize about something that actually is reparable. Now, I can understand if somebody broke something that you'd been building, and that's probably two and a half, that's a bit older, probably, toddlers. Somebody broke something or somebody had scribbled on something you'd done. That is pretty awful. But because you know how toddlers have very keen senses of mine 
and not and yours yeah. and you take my thing and it's a catastrophe and, th- and then we what do we do we teach them sharing don't we we teach them turn taking we say actually it's not a catastrophe if someone has it because then you have something back and it goes mm. back and forth so that's the modulation of this irregular emotion that you're having i suppose it's that balance between recognizing how awful it is for them but also helping them to regulate it i think parents do that really naturally Mm. they'll say oh that's terrible isn't it but you know what we'll buy you another one that's awful but you'll have a turn with it later something like that i mean the real catastrophe is when you leave your you know your fuzzy new new rabbit on the bus that's really bad did that happen to you (laughs) no it happened to a friend of mine's daughter actually and she said what she did was go out and buy another rabbit. And we had a big conversation about whether she should have waited a bit and just been really sad about the missing rabbit. Yeah. And then after the missing rabbit, imagine the rabbit going on travels on the bus around the town and what what he was doing before saying, oh dear, I think he really has gone on his adventures now. Shall we get another one or something else? Mm. So it was a question about acknowledging the grief, the absolute grief of that little one in a very respectful way yeah I mean it's hard because if we are kind and we like our children we do want to make things better for them and there Mm. is that sort of thing of jumping in sort of repairing things possibly a bit too quickly and following on from that I mean we've talked about the effects that toddlers can have on adults and how can we help sort of parents listening with that because you know also I think sometimes you have to have the reserves And if you don't feel listened to or looked after and you're exhausted, it can actually be quite hard, I think, to then be so responsive to a toddler. So what could we say to a parent or caregiver who's just thinking, I just find it really hard? I think that's an enormously important part of looking after little children and babies applies to babies as well. And I think we as a community need to be aware of where people are doing this alone when they're on their own and they're single parents. They don't have support or they're away from families, away, etc. And encourage, first of all, this is sort of starting from the outside in, if you like, is being encouraging to people to get in touch with other people in the same boat. I don't think I would have made, made it through raising my own children if I didn't have groups and people you meet at the swings and neighbours and whatever you know friends who could just say oh I know it's awful isn't it and they'll say tomorrow is another day who look after you and who can let you forgive yourself and get away from that harsh criticism that's going on in your head saying I've done the wrong thing I should have done that or other people are comparing yourself to other parents thinking well their child's really good and calm why why is mine not and getting a sort of big picture on it all so the first thing is other people other people who are supportive of you and not critical of you And to remember that even if you do come across other parents or you read stuff that seems critical, to put that in context as well, especially other people. If somebody's sort of saying, oh, I wouldn't let my son get away with that. Mm. You have to think, where are you coming from that you need to say that? Is that going right back to earlier? We were talking about people who need for their own sanity to keep in control of things for them controlling their child is how they keep sane and they're then saying to you you should do that for yours too we are all different it's like trying to hold on to some self-compassion and support there are things that are helpful as we were saying we're saying about toddler brains will be helped by good 
warm, interactive, chatty relationships with you. They will be helped by having boundaries, knowing, no, you really can't do that. That will all work. So there, there are things to do. But our toddler is different. You're different. They may have an older sibling. You may have a new baby in the house. You may have a two-year-old and a six-week-old. Boy, oh boy, that throws up a lot of issues as well. So allow some breathing space for ourselves and ask for help if you need it. If you think things are really bad, then you get to a health visitor or a GP or a teacher in the creche or any groups that you're in, uh, involved in because you don't have to do it alone. But I know a lot of people are. I mean, it can be enormously comforting when you share behaviours. I remember you said in the teenage episode, that's one thing that's quite lacking as your children become teenagers because you don't have that school gate thing where you can kind of chat and compare favourably and so you don't feel so isolated mm. if you hear that, you know, another child is doing something. I also think in my own mothering journey aspects of my own upbringing came up and I often have to partly because of the job I do I'm very lucky and I separate out what's my stuff and what's the child's how can we help parents think about what might be their issues and what's actually going on in front of them I think it's really good to talk to somebody now if you are raising your toddler with a partner talk to each other about what your parents were like and this works actually for any age group it doesn't not just toddlers but any any age to just sort of say what what was your dad like what was your mum like and compare notes deliberately and specifically you may be super aware of how different your parents are but it's very likely that your own upbringings are, are slightly different and you have rules R rules about how things would how things should be when I talk to parents they'll say well my father would never have allowed that so I say, oh, tell me about your dad. Well, this is the kind of person he was. This is the job he did. He lost his mum when he was 14. And all these surprising things pop out when you hear each other's histories. Yeah. So it's a really nice thing you can do over a glass of wine or a cup of tea is just chat about what people were like when you were young. What was the best thing that ever happened to you about your mum or your dad? What was the worst thing? If you don't know who your mum or dad were, were the people who were caring for you, what was helpful? People can do it through self-reflection, you can do it through therapy, but you can do it through just chatting to people. Sometimes you need your blind spots pointed out a little bit, and that's sometimes if it's a, if you really find yourself getting stuck or too anxious or worried or self-critical, then a counsellor can be helpful because it's a sort of neutral third party then to say, there's your parents, there's you, and let's have a think about that. And in the end, that's about, funnily enough, isn't it? It's about under, if we're understanding ourselves and our toddlers, in the end, if we're looking at our upbringing, it's going to be about understanding and having some compassion for our own parents. Yeah, it's a weird sandwich It's effect. a very odd, it's a big loop. <laughs> Rachel, sometimes when you're under stress, you can revert to cliches or things that you heard in your upbringing like don't you speak to me like that or or things like that I think we spoke about that as well in in teenage years when they press your buttons you can sometimes you don't think maybe you go to your own toddler brain and you just come out with real cliches don't you absolutely or you can no, do you, you can you do and you've said it beautifully there is that it's under stress when you're in high anxiety or under stress, it's like clutching around for some tool, something that will work. And what pops up is, don't you speak to me like that? Or a label, like you're a bossy little madam. 
And you think, goodness me, why am I saying that? That's really sexist mm. and terrible. And it pops up. Uh, but it's because you're under pressure. So is there a way that we can keep ourselves calm and it breathing? I know it's sound, that sounds like something very common and cliche, but if you can breathe, it, really works, I know. it actually works. It regulates your, your heart and respiratory system so that all that cortisol whooshing about stands down. So you can breathe and go, right, okay, what do I think about this? With older children, you can walk out of the room, take five minutes and come back in again. Toddlers, you can't. You can't leave them unattended with a, a felt tip marker in their hand, can mm. you? You've just got to be there. But I think it's about calming yourself down, giving yourself a moment yeah. and or doing something odd like singing. I'm really interested in how if you use different parts of the brain to address high emotional states something else can happen it does make a difference as to how you're communicating with the toddler and also yourself so following on from that if your toddler is having a tantrum in the supermarket in a public place yeah and it taps into your thing of you're so embarrassed everyone's looking at you everyone's thinking you're a bad parent what can you do for yourself to calm you down to give you the best possible chance to deal with your wonderful two-year-old. I think what you want to do is walk off and leave them, don't you? And I wonder where that advice about leaving toddlers and tantrums, maybe they're hidden in there somewhere as a feeling like they're nothing to do with me and mm. you want to leave them. But I, I wouldn't. I would probably I would kneel down next to them and I would keep your focus on your child. And so the more you keep your focus on the child, the less you're going to see the, I don't know, whatever is on the faces of people watching whatever is there. You don't need to see that. That will just make it worse. When the toddler gets in a state of, let's say, anxiety, distress, being overwhelmed, which is what a temper tantrum is, they convey that to you and you pick it up because they are directing it at you often. And you will then begin to feel yourself overwhelmed, distressed and anxious. And then what happens in the brain is your brain starts looking, scanning for danger. It's a very basic brain function to look around and think, okay, who is going to attack me now? And guess what? If you look around at the faces, you're going to find somebody who is, through their facial expression, attacking you. So don't look. Become a monk. Look down. Look at your toddler. <laughs> look at their shoe. Hold their ankle. Do something small and focused. This is why parents can say things like, oh, dear, 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 dear. So little repetitive things. It's like mm. a soothing thing for yourself as well as the child. And then I would do the sensory thing like patting a back or stroking or something like that and saying, oh, my goodness, you are. This is awful. Oh, dear, dear, dear. Let me see what, you know, would you and you can whatever suits you. Like you, can, you want to distract them by showing them your keys or you want to show, say, you know, how very sad they are, or very upset. But it's your eyes do not need to be looking around the street, the supermarket, whatever, just focus on them. Okay, and also some of those parents might be thinking, oh my gosh, you know, now if I see that happening and it's appropriate, I say to the parent, can I help in any way? And sometimes they just appreciate that sort of contact. And sometimes, and this kind of brings me on to an next question, you never know what's going on for the child because we've been talking about sort of typical toddler behaviour but at what point would you think, actually, I think my child may have something that needs further investigation? I'm thinking about being on the autistic spectrum or something like that. What are the things to look for? 
that's a really good point, isn't it? Because I think we want to see this behaviour on the tantrums, etc., as normal and as a phase, and it will pass. But sometimes the intensity of it is such that we're wondering, is there something wrong here? And I think, first of all, I would trust your instincts. If you think, yeah, this is quite bad, but it's really too bad, then let's go with that. A couple of things to look out for would be self-injury. So if you have a, and this is actually, in the great scheme of things, does happen. So that's toddlers hitting themselves, biting themselves, hitting their heads against a wall. If that happens, I'd say longer than 20 minutes or something, where somebody's really going on and on and on, you, it, you need to stop it. You need to stop it as soon as you can, really. And that might need more stringent measures, like I've talked about holding hands, but you might need to get an, a blanket and wrap, wrap somebody up in it if they're doing that, because they are going to hurt themselves. So there's the intensity to look for. There's also the duration to look for. And there's also really catastrophizing about very tiny things. Mm. That may need a bit of help. It may need just some talking to a professional. It may be thinking about heading things off at the pass, watching what is going to be a problem and helping that emotional regulation we were talking about. But when we do have children that have, say, attentional problems or do have neurodiverse brains, they are going to have more trouble in regulating than other kids. They will. That's just how it is. And it's better to get in early because, remember, the brain is incredibly plastic. All those neural pathways can be changed and rerouted. We want them to be rerouted as soon as possible. When, when there's lots of change happening so that someone is not having meltdowns as a tiny thing happening when they're seven, or at least that you know what to do. Parents say to me, oh, but I don't want so-and-so to be labelled. And I think, gosh, that's an interesting way of looking at it. And I know it's a hugely painful and difficult thing to think that your child, who you think is 100% brilliant, may have a different way of being, or their brain may be working slightly differently, and stepping over that line or beginning to think about it is very distressing sometimes. But labelling... If you had a child who couldn't decode their words when they get to school and they had trouble with spelling and reversing the numbers and their letters, we wouldn't say, oh, well, I don't want to label him, where someone might be saying, but if the child has dyslexia, we want to help. We can do lots of things. There's loads of people out there who manage that. Similarly, neurodiversity, exactly the same. We yeah. need to help them as early as we can. And we want to make it clear that there's nothing wrong or bad about being like that and it's not something that you can't fix autism for example but you can get support if your child has some sort of attention disorder or is neurodivergent they can just have support and also understanding absolutely yes they can they can get help i just say all brains are different it's a sort of mantra i have really all brains are different so we want to be able to have your teacher at school understand that your child isn't being stupid or naughty but actually they're having difficulty perhaps processing some information and they need to have it slower or maybe more visually or maybe on a laptop instead of written down you know whatever nowadays there's so many ways we can help all different brains really make the most of what they've got and that's mm. the aim. We also want our children to be happy, don't we? We want them to feel good about themselves. Rachel, can we also talk about separation worries, which may happen when a toddler starts to go to nursery or goes into their own room or a new baby comes along? What might be going on for the toddler at those stages? 
I think toddlers really thrive on the way things are. They like the way things are. Now, they do. They are curious about novelty, but just a bit, just a bit, not loads. So big novelty would be moving from, say, a cot to a big bed or from your room to their own room or certainly birth of another sibling. And they really are not terribly good at coping with this. And if I just think about going off to creche, as you mentioned, or nursery, that is a, a very fundamental fear that human babies, toddlers have, because us humans are, if we left our little ones, eventually they would not survive, unlike a calf or a giraffe or a horse or something that can do its own thing. So they are absolutely wired to stay near the parent. So when you say, please go now and Celia will look after you and she's lovely, person in the nursery that doesn't make sense to your toddler necessarily what does make sense is the stuff that's there that's sort of fun toys and the activities that might make some sense and gradually what will make sense to them is that they begin to have a relationship with Celia and that she's quite nice really and you begin to move from the sort of home relationships into the outside relationships but that can be for some children really distressing we use the same kind of approach here, just saying, I know, you know, you've, it feels very difficult to go in and you're very sad about that, but let's think who you're going to see. And I think probably one of the key things here is preparation. It's actually talking about the new situation when you're not in it, so at home, and and playing it out with little toys. So you have all your little animals, they're all going to nursery and then they will come back again. And think about visuals, think about play, think about ways you can not just talk, but act out little dramas of what's happening with your toddler to prepare them. And then I think all fantastic nursery workers are very skilled at doing little bits at a time. So you go for half an hour and then you come back and then you do an hour and then you come back. They realise that's okay. But you might see them settling into a new space quite well and then they might wake up at night or they might not use the toilet anymore you see funny little regressions happening which are their way of saying i'm not quite ready to be big yet mm. so it goes forwards and backwards and i admittedly that is a tough time because it's not steady it's win some then lose some two steps forward one step back possibly okay so that there's that and then you mentioned new baby happening oh that's a real curveball because you are you feel a bit older and you've got language and you can do things and do clever paintings that your parents like. And then they get another one. They get this little thing that they seem obsessed with. So does everybody else. Granny seems obsessed with them as well. And I think they can feel enormously displaced. Now then, as a toddler, what do you do if you're looking at the adults and they're saying, this is your new baby brother? And you think you've got to make a calculation, an emotional one. If I want to retain the interest and love of my parents, I have to join in with what they're doing. So then you go up and you kiss your baby brother and everyone goes, oh, isn't that sweet? It doesn't mean to say you still harbour extreme <laughs> wishes that they would go back to the hospital. Mm -hmm. I'm actually quite relieved when kids say, can you take them back now, please? Because then not not in that sophisticated language but baby go now could you take them back I, I talked to a mum the other day who said she is expecting a new baby and the the old it's just an old child and a toddler and the old child said can the baby hear what we say and the the mum said oh I'm sure and so then the toddler went up and put her mouth against the tummy and said baby poo poo which I thought was <laughs> 
terrific because here we are. It's a little expressive person saying, you know, I'm not sure about this. Right from the beginning, the hardest part of when you have good as gold children who parents say, oh, he was lovely. He loved his sister from the minute. He was so kind. And I'm thinking, where did the sort of natural displacement feeling go? Where did it go? Where has it gone? Well, I think it's gone. It's been it's gone inwards. You won't be in with the gang. And, yeah, and you don't feel those feelings are going to be sort of accepted or tolerated. That's or whatever. right. So you don't say them. And that's a very common thing, which adults will say then, oh, I was never allowed to be annoyed or angry about anything. I couldn't say that I didn't like something. And it often starts around that time where you've just got to be accepting of the new situation. And... And this is a really unfortunate thing that happens accidentally. At the time you have a new baby, you might be saying, this is the time for my older tod- my toddler to go off to nursery. Mm. So at the same time as they're already displaced, you're sending them off. So people say, well, is there a right time to have a second baby? Now, if you can, you know, if you're in charge of this, because you could be waiting a long time. Yeah. Or you could... But what in an ideal world, what would you say? In an ideal world, I'd say... Have your second child or third child or whatever when the older child has the language to describe the experience, which could be as simple as baby away, Mm. baby gone. It could be like that. But if they have any language, because sometimes people say, oh, no, I wanted to have my children be best friends when they're older. So I have them really close together. And then you have a kind of slightly compromised wordless toddler thinking, what? Or young child being wondering what's going on. So if you can, if the older one has language to describe it, then at least you've got something to work with. Then we can say, I know it's hard. And also, tell you another great thing you can do with toddlers is you can have chats about the new baby that don't damage the baby at all. You can say, I know baby Liam, he's a bit stinky, isn't he, sometimes? And he just cries and doesn't do anything. And it's just really annoying, isn't it? And baby Liam doesn't care. He just lies there mm. googling and happy as Larry. But your toddler will think that's quite, that's like, oh, good. Somebody knows what it's yeah. like. Well, because I was going to ask, you know, how do you help them with these separation occasion? And I guess mm. it sort of follows on from what we've been saying, which is acknowledging how they feel, which I think is really the number one thing when that's happened to me or when I've done it to children, that the sense of relief in their little faces that somebody mm. speaks their language And it sounds so simple, but it's so effective. I think successful separations happen, and this works for us as adults as well, when you feel you have a really good connection with the person you're leaving. Mm. And toddlers need reminding that that exists. So a very simple thing to say is when you say, off you go at nursery with this lovely teacher or assistant, bye-bye, I'll see you later, I'll be thinking of you. If you say, I'll be thinking of you, it's saying there is a kind of unseen connection between us, even though we're not in the same place. And I think imagining what somebody is doing is a good way of connection. This is not my my idea at all, but I came across a book called, which people might know about, called Invisible String, I think it's called, which is about a mum telling two youngish children that they are connected by invisible string wherever she goes. And that's a way of managing anxiety and separation and it's really, you could say it's love or you could say it's thinking about the other person. But we, we have that unseen connection wherever we are. And that is exactly what you need your toddler to have so that they can 
go off with other people or when they don't see you you're in their head as it were I think also children love the thought that you're thinking of them when they're not there Rachel thank you so much I know in the teenage one you gave us a a magic phrase of tell me more if you're really stuck with your teenager having a meltdown or whatever just having these sort of back pocket phrases as I like to think of them do you have one for toddlers I think that it's probably what you've said about understanding how they feel and it's what parents say really commonly it's I know like saying I know Mm. I know because if you are understanding you will say something like I know you know it works for everything doesn't it really it's reassuring it's saying I'm interested in how you're feeling toddlers can't tell you more can they really you say I'm I'm gonna do a jolly good job of guessing and that's what I think I know lovely thank you so much Rachel thank you Thanks so much to Rachel and her insights. If you'd like to learn more about her work, her website is at www.rachelmelvillethomas.com. She mentions a book called The Invisible String, which is by Patrice Cast. I'd really like to stress a few things. One is how important and effective it is to just acknowledge how a child feels. So saying something like, that sounds like a really hard day, or you seem really upset, rather than telling a child how they should or shouldn't feel, sounds really facile, but it really works. If you've listened to this and think, I've done everything wrong, well, join the club. But you're here, you're learning, and honestly, by really trying to understand your toddler and treating them with kindness and respect, even when you have to be firm with them, isn't going to create a monster. So ignore anyone who says that. What you're actually doing is investing in your child. You're telling them that how they feel matters, ergo they matter. And you're also giving them some amazing skills for when they're older. The last things to remember. The toddler stage is an intense one, but it's just that, a stage, and it passes. And remember that toddlers are vulnerable, they need you. But one day, those roles will be reversed, so go carefully. The producer is Hester Kant, the music is by Toby Dunham and our artwork is by Lo Cole. If you'd like to read my column, it appears every Saturday in The Guardian Saturday magazine. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Kristen. And this is Jen from My Mom So Hard. And we're here to talk about By Heart. Do you remember when you were nursing and you were like, I want to give the best thing I can to my baby? Well, we've got that for you. It's called By Heart. And it is a infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Curious about By Heart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with code MOMS20 for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. 
tell my mom so hard sent you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in. So much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free. So if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.